Amen. He is all we need. And we remind ourselves of that again today as we look at Psalm 23. Psalm 23. Please turn with me there. The focus of our study today will be in verses 3 and 4. But it's so good to read the whole thing. So let's do that together. I will lead. Please read along silently. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life. And I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Following can be frustrating. Depending on who you're following to where you are following them or how easy or difficult they make it to follow. Following me, not in a pastoral sense alone, but just from point A to point B is a frustrating experience for many. I'm the guy that um, will run through the stoplight and leave you there. It's a habit. I don't know why. I just forget. I forget that there are people behind me. My wife's shaking her head. Not only am I um, sometimes tough to follow because of the pace at which I prefer to go, but also sometimes the path I choose to get there. I don't always know where I'm going. And um, I'll pretend I do. Look, this is hard to admit because you're thinking, I'm sure this transfers to other areas of life. It probably does. I'm speaking today of driving from point A to point B. (laughs) I remember as a kid, like I'd be sitting in the car with my mom and my friend lived in this really confusing neighborhood, this huge neighborhood with all these streets. And you didn't have GPS at the time. I'm like, oh yeah, I know how to get there. Yeah, take a left here. Take a right there. And like by the time we've gotten to like the seventh or eighth turn, I'm still going like, yeah, no, no, it's just right around the corner. You know, like I'm just leading it on. And you lose credibility. It's just like it's frustrating to follow somebody who's going too fast or somebody who doesn't know where they're going. Another time it can be frustrating to follow is when you don't like who you're following. Like there's a there's a certain amount of like personal credibility. That's required of someone else to take the lead. Do you not see that 
in another election year? (laughs) Everybody's scared to death of whoever the next leader will be because they're going to have to follow this person and they think that, that character and ethos matter. They do. Following's hard for some of us. It's frustrating. But even, even at times it is difficult, frustrating, and hard to follow the perfect leader, our Lord Jesus. I mean, it's one thing to struggle to follow the guy who doesn't know where he's going. Or the guy that moves a little too fast. Or the guy whose character is questionable. But do you ever experience the, the difficulty of following the Lord Jesus Christ? Is that ever hard for you? It's hard, it's hard for me. I think there are some in here today who look at the leadership of the Lord Jesus as a nice option for some, something that's not really for them. We know plenty of people who have resisted the Lord's lead, resisted the Lord's way. They don't want to go down that path. If you thought it was just so obvious, just think of the fact that most of the people in the world don't follow him. But then there are also those who are trying to follow him, but we just sometimes just get distracted. (laughs) Like a kid following a butterfly or a dog that finds a squirrel. It just, it it gets away from the parent. It gets away from the owner. We we just, some things are just so shiny. (laughs) We can't help but like get diverted. We've got diversions and... And then there are these odd things that happen to us because we're human. There's also distortions. There are times when God's good and clear ways don't seem that good. Because like we have this, this, this eye disease spiritually that just distorts things like a carnival mirror. Like we take God's good laws and commands and ways and, and things get twisted in such a way that what seems like dis, discomforting or difficult, it looks huge. And what seems delightful or potentially good seems small. <laughs> and we don't want to go down that path. We don't want to obey in that particular way. Sometimes it is frustrating. But I'm glad that Psalms like this one, like shift our focus. They, they bring things back into clarity, enabling us to see the leadership of our Lord, our Good Shepherd, not as something frustrating or fearful, but something that is good. At texts like this, don't underscore the, the difficulty of following Jesus, but the delight. The goal of, of David in this particular psalm is to so personally 
express his enjoyment of living under the lordship of Yahweh, that he wants others to enter into the goodness of being able to follow in that same way. So if you ever find the following of Jesus to be something hard, this text is intended to make it happy. If it ever seems a little scary, this text makes it safe. The goal for anybody reading these couple verses in the middle in particular is actually for you to confidently follow your good shepherd Lord. Not reluctantly follow, not despairingly follow, not begrudgingly follow, but to delightfully, confidently follow your shepherd Lord. And to do that, he gives us a couple of, um, of ways our shepherd Lord leads that will entice us into following him. These ways are pretty simple. Um, he, uh, he presides over us. He, he takes the lead over us. He shepherds us as a guide down righteous roads. That's in the second half of verse 3. He shepherds us as a guide down righteous roads. And we'll also see that he shepherds us as our guard through dismal valleys. Our guard through dismal valleys. Notice this guidance down righteous roads in the second half of verse 3. I skip straight to the second half because the re- restoration of soul mentioned in the first line is most beautifully tied to that idea of the sheep being quantitatively and qualitatively provided for in these abundant green pastures with rivers of flowing water. Like that's restorative. He says that the waters will give rest. They lie down in the pastures. I mean, it's a summary of those first couple lines. But as the poem continues, the a question like at least should be asked by some of us, is like, hey, what was wrong with those, um, those places? That place of abundant provision. Like, why does he have to go down a path? Why would the shepherd lead them away from this beautiful verdant valley in the first place? I think most of us just think that if we were looking at Psalm 23 as like the ultimate cell on Jesus as shepherd, we'd just say, all right, we'll end it at the, the first half of verse 3. But then there's all this like hard, dark stuff there in the middle, and it makes you wonder, like, what's up? Well, it's just it's part of being sheep. I don't know if you recognize it or not, but uh, shepherds didn't just guide their sheep into a particular valley and leave them there forever. The sheep would eat up the grass in that particular place, and guess what? They'd have to find a new place. I did some fancy math this week to try to figure out how much time it would take a couple hundred sheep to eat an acre of grass. Don't tell me math doesn't matter. It's about two weeks. A couple hundred sheep could, I mean, they'll, they'll eat it down to dirt in a couple weeks. Now, keep in mind, it's the ancient Near East. It's a drier climate. 
Uh, these abundant pastures were pretty rare. And so the skillful shepherd is one who not just like gets them to one of them, but he has to like keep finding the next one and the next one and the next one. It was pretty seasonal. This is fascinating to me. And that climate, like during the, 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 the non-rainy season, or excuse me, during the springtime, that would be the time for them to actually take the sheep like like up, up the mountains, spring and summer, there would actually be growth on the mountains because the valleys during the winter, they would be too cold. So they would, excuse me, wintertime, they take them up to the top. Sorry, I'm so confused because I'm not a shepherd. <laughs> the point is, depending on the climate, sometimes they're up in the mountains, sometimes they're down in the valleys, sometimes they're at the fringe of the desert, sometimes they're by a river. Sheep can't eat when it's too cold, therefore they need the warmth. And once they eat out the valley, there's nowhere else to go. It's all about the timing. They had to know the entire terrain. They were nomads. They were constantly on the move. In fact, the shepherds often would take a circuit that could last them a year long before they came back for shearing season. The shepherd characteristically provides abundantly for his people, but sometimes they've got to beat the well-worn paths and get to the next spot. We know this even from the text that he says at the very end, the ultimate place of the sheep is in the house of Yahweh forever. It's progress, and there's plenty of provision But there's also paths to be trodden to get from the one place of provision to the next. And so the text gives us this just basic analogy that's not hard for any of us to understand. It says that he leads me in paths of righteousness for his namesake. I love this uh, because there's a a play on words here. You can even see it if you have uh, the ESV There's a little one there in your Bible. You go down to the bottom and it says right paths. So you could translate it one of two ways and both work. You could say he leads me down paths of righteousness or you can say he leads me down the right paths. Both are true. The shepherd had to take them down the right roads, the right paths, because though all roads may lead to Rome, As the saying goes, not all roads lead to abundant pastures. (laughs) I think we all know that some roads will take you where you need to go, some will not. The shepherd has to know the road to take. And by the way, he didn't just like blaze a new trail from point A to point B. He took the safest places. You could literally interpret it this way. The wagon, uh, the wheel wagon tracks of righteousness... They're well-worn paths. They're like roads. And they're they're, they're places that he knows where they're going. He leads them down these particular places that will get them to the right destination. And yet it's not just about the right roads. It's about the righteous roads. See, the way Yahweh, the shepherd, works is he leads his people through the good and right commands that he has given them. Like, that is the path. That is the way to progress. Like, you follow him in the ways that he has given. There's there's guidance already. Do this, not that. 
Live for this, not for that. These are paths of righteousness, paths that are marked by the right things in the eyes of God. And I I point this out because we live in a day and age that actually honors and celebrates somebody taking their own way. (laughs) Blaze your own trail. Do your own thing. Follow your own heart. Be true to yourself. And yet, what a stunning difference is here. Like, the the right way is behind the shepherd, down the well-worn paths that have been clearly laid out, by implication, in his word. That's the best way. In fact, the Bible actually gives some pretty stern warnings to those of us in the room who may be tempted to blaze our own trail. Remember Proverbs? He says, There is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Your own path may not take you to where you ultimately want to go. Is that not what Jesus warned in Matthew chapter 7 as he's summarizing this most famous sermon of his? And what do he say? There's two ways. There's a broad gate and a broad, easy way. It's a lot of fun to go down, but it'll lead you to destruction, to hell itself. But there's also a narrow way, or the narrow gate, that leads to life everlasting. I love the breadth of the one and the narrowness of the other because all of us in choosing our own way could go a myriad of different ways. There's, our hearts are so unique. We could go a ton of different directions, but only one actually points us to the provision and protection provided by Yahweh alone. And so he says, like, there's, there's great confidence to, to follow the shepherd down these right paths because, now I want you to fill in the blank here without looking at the text, why would he try to entice us into walking down these right paths? Is it because it's what's best for us? Because things are really good down there? Like, note his logic. Look at the text now. He says, He leads me down paths of righteousness for his namesake. Um, I don't know about you, but it kind of strikes you as weird. You would think that the the great sell, the great advantage of following his ways is that it's just really, really good for our own souls and hearts. But that's not his rationale. He says, you could go down these paths. Like, you get to follow him down these paths because he's interested in his own name. Now, that is confusing to some. Like, why would I care, you know, about, like, his interest? Like, I would want a shepherd that's interested in me. That's a very American way of thinking. Like, why isn't he interested in me? Well, he's obviously interested in you. I mean, he's made that clear. But what's going on here is that even in his shepherding care, he realizes that it's his reputation at stake. He cares about his name. For any of you who have a, who have a business and have been subjected to Google reviews, you know the importance of a good name. 
Just let a couple people leave you one star and then try to tell the people who were checking you out, like, oh, yeah, there was just a really, you know, angry, irate, customer, irrational, you know, the normal people like me, even though you don't have any other reviews. <laughs> um, Proverbs tells us again, a good name is rather to be chosen than what? Great riches. Have you ever thought about the fact that God cares about his reputation? He cares about his name. He cares about his glory. He cares about the way that he comes across. If he's going to own the title shepherd for the sheep, he cares about having a reputation as a great shepherd. I would think through the the women in the room who had the privilege through their teenage years or even now of babysitting another person's child. (laughs) You understand that you got a lot of reputation at stake in that endeavor. You care about the care of that child and your name. It's an interesting position to be in. The child's well-being and your well-being are tied to one another. In God's economy... The salvation of his people, the well-being of his people, he ties to his own name. Like, our interest and his interests align. This should fascinate most of us because, like, it's easy to think that God only does what he does because he loves us and because he cares for us. And that is so true, he does And yet the Bible makes it clear that God does everything ultimately for his own name. Listen to how he says it to the children of Israel in 1 Samuel chapter 12 verses 20 to 22. Do not be afraid. You have done all this evil, yet do not turn aside from following the Lord. Notice that, following the Lord. But serve the Lord with all your heart. And do not turn aside after empty things that cannot profit or deliver, for they are empty. For the Lord will not forsake his people for his great name's sake, because it has pleased the Lord to make you a people for himself. Do you see the motivation there? He's saying, look, don't go down these other paths because the Lord is determined to do something good with you. Like his name is on the line. Like it's his name on the side of the salvation truck. He cares about how His goodness is being perceived. Another one is Isaiah 63, verses 11 to 14. Just hear it. Where is he who brought them up out of the sea with the shepherds of his flock? Where is he who put in the midst of them his Holy Spirit, who caused his glorious arm to go at the right hand of Moses, who divided the waters before them to make for himself an everlasting name, who led them through the depths? Like a horse in the desert, they did not stumble. Like livestock that go down into the valley, the Spirit of the Lord gave them rest. So you led your people to make for yourself a glorious name. God wants you to go down the right paths because it's good for you. But God also wants you to go down the right paths because your well-being glorifies him in the end. One Old Testament scholar put it this way. He says, we live in a universe where God's interest and his people's interest cohere 
not compete. Or another, I like this. This is from Philip Keller in that classic work, A Shepherd's Look at Psalm 23. He says, this verse links a lump of common clay to divine destiny. It means a mere mortal becomes the cherished object of divine diligence. Think about that. Your well-being is at stake. And his worship. So why go down these righteous paths? Why follow his ways? Because they're good. His glory is at stake. He is just as interested in your safety as you are. In fact, more than you are. He is more interested in your well-being than you could be because like, his infinite glorious name is at stake. I think this is good for us to remember, dear friends, when God's laws to us and his ways seem so hard, seem so difficult, seem so boring. I mean, really, sometimes we look at the law of God and his commands to us like it's the great obstacle to our satisfaction and safety. A typical example is the... The teenager who, who longs for some form of like sexual gratification. And yet the Bible has said, do not fornicate, don't commit adultery. And they're like, oh, this just seems so frustrating. It seems like this is in the way. And yet God's plan is so much better. To enjoy that experience within the bond of marriage. Like it is a, it is a better way. Another example. God's good plans for like our, our stewardship, our stuff. Like, what do we do with that? Like, the fact that God would actually command his people to give generously uh, to his purposes and not just hoard it all for themselves, it seems good. It, seem, it, it would seem a lot better for that extra money to go toward whatever my next thing is that I want. And it seems like it's not that good for it to go somewhere else where I'm not directly going to benefit, and yet his ways are good. The Puritans used to talk about the three uses of the law. The third use of the law was supposed to be like just the way that we are supposed to live, like the general principles of the Ten Commandments. These are God's ways. And I know we're not under the Old Covenant, but some of the moral principles there still apply. But here's the fascinating thing. When these Puritan guys would get together and organize these books on like what, who God is and how we are to behave, they always put his law under the section of gratitude. Like they had some major, like the big rocks, if you will, of how to respond to God. Like one of the, the first ones were like gratefulness. And for them, law was just a way just to show gratitude. Like this is a way that God's been good to you. He's given you like some really clear instruction. These are right paths. These are good ways. Follow him in that. Maybe some of you here today have uh, begun thinking about ways to maybe step off the path or divert from it a little or maybe you've already taken a couple steps off. Whether it be in a wrong relationship or the way that you use your time on the internet. 
or the things that you neglect to do that would further the name of the Lord Jesus, whatever it may be, I want to remind you, not, not guilt you, I want to grace you with something. The good way, the right way, is to follow the shepherd who is interested in your well-being because it will ultimately garner him the most glory. We can follow him confidently because he guides down righteous roads. But also, keep in mind, you can still follow him confidently, even when things seem hard or difficult, because he guards through dismal valleys. He not only guides down righteous roads, but he also guards through dismal valleys. Look at verse 4. Even though, notice this, in the context of going down the right paths, the righteous paths, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. <laughs> this, is, this is something that we really need to take in, friends. Uh, I'm glad to actually hear. I know that the verse could be a little bit of a downer, but at least to me, it is a little relieving to hear that following him is not all sunshine, lollipops, and rainbows. Because we would be tempted to think, especially in light of what we meditated upon last week, that if we just follow him in his good way, everything's going to turn out great all the time. There are preachers on TV who would tell you that. Many more on the radio. Several in this city. That if it's not going great, you must have taken the wrong path. But the way that the, the Hebrew works here is that this is an extension of verse 3. The right paths sometimes take you through the most reprehensible valleys. Historically, as these shepherds would have to take people from valley to mountaintop to valley, naturally, they had to go through these crevices and ravines. It would be long and dark. They would abound with places for predators or scoundrels to hide. I mean, they were, they were walled so high that like, the light could, could barely peek in except for one little part of the day. But there was no interstate highway system for the sheep. Sometimes this was the only way to get to the green grass. And so the shepherd would take these hundreds of sheep and lead them through the valley. They don't stay there. They go through it. But what I want you to note is that they walk through it. Do you ever have that experience as a kid where you're afraid of the dark? Maybe everybody did. I don't know if there's a way to avoid it. <laughs> I remember, um, yeah, sometimes like I, I would be asked to go get something from like upstairs. And like the light would be on, you know, in my room. And the light is on downstairs. And for some reason, I didn't know to turn the light on in between. <laughs> Maybe it was just a test to see if I could brave the darkness. But what would happen was there would be this like sprint. 
like through the dark, and you get into your room, and you're, whew. Then you got to go back. And then you beat it down the hallway, down the steps again, and you could just hear it, be coming all the way down. Because we rush through the darkness. We think that there are things there that could get us. That's where the dangerous things are. But the sheep here, they're not like scurrying their way through the valley. It says, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. This is stunning. I think that the, um, the term there, the valley of the shadow of death, is probably the most stunning. It's a compound word in Hebrew. It's two words like mashed up together. And it's really hard to tell. Like if you wanted to just read all the fancy exegetical commentaries, it's really hard to tell exactly what it means. Some people think that it primarily means deathly darkness, the valley of deathly darkness. Others would say that it primarily means the valley of, of dark death. Now you're saying, like, what's the difference? Well, I just want you to know whether you understand the difference between the two. None of it's sounding great. You could say the valley of the shadow of death. You could say the valley of deathly darkness. You can say the valley of darkest death. All of it sounds like a horror novel or a ride at the county fair. And yet here, it is the inevitable path with two potential outcomes. If you say that it is the valley of deathly darkness... Death is just used as a metaphor for the dark, the unknown, the mysterious things. The sheep go through and they're afraid because they can't see. There's not a real threat, there's just a potential threat. And I would say that at least experience resonates with us on that end. Like the kid running through the dark hallway, we know what it's like to reach certain stages of life where we're like, I have no clue what's going on here. And whatever it is that's going to happen next doesn't seem like it's going to be that great. Sometimes it's just the threat of darkness. It is deathly. It is, it is so dark. We don't see the next step and that, that scares us. And yet the other threat is also possible. Where it is not just the valley of deathly darkness, but the valley of darkest death. It is death itself. The threat could here be death itself. The sheep wouldn't know whether or not death was imminent. They were awful, fearful little creatures. But we ourselves sometimes do perceive death crowding in upon us, its shadow already on us. This is experientially true and theologically true. Do you remember in Genesis uh, chapter 2 where God tells Adam and Eve not to eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, for in the day you eat thereof you shall what? Die. And then you read chapter 3, and guess what? They eat of it. But guess what? You ever thought about this? They didn't die. What happened? I like the way that Calvin explains it. 
He says, from that moment on, death was encroaching. They did not die, they were dying. And so the shadow of death grows longer and larger the older we get. When you're younger, you hardly think about it. And then another decade comes, and another decade comes, and the thread of death is closer and closer and closer. And even as death is approaching and could potentially overtake, David says, I will fear no evil. I will fear no harm. This is not going to turn out poorly. Why? For you are with me. With me. That's a fascinating preposition. It seems like rather obvious, like, duh, you're with me. You're with everybody. I mean, this is the same David who wrote in Psalm 139 that God is everywhere. He says, if I go to the highest heavens, you're there. If I go to the lowest hell, you're there. Like, everywhere I go, you're there. Technically speaking, God is with everybody. Let's say that it was a predator. Well, God's close to the predator too. But the term with is different than the word by. (laughs) To say that someone is by me just means they're within physical proximity of me. To say that someone is with me means that they are on my side. I'll put it this way. Score one for team sheep. Yahweh's on their side. He is with them. He is not against them. Yes, God is everywhere at all times equally, technically, but he is only for, there's another preposition, he is only for his people. And so David takes great comfort in knowing that no matter whether it's the shadow of death or death itself, it's all good because God is with me. He is, he is on my team. This is pretty cool to me. I would have never been able to figure this out on my own. But in the Hebrew, there's 20 lines, including the opening line, a psalm of David. This is the very center point of the psalm. You're with me. All the good things coming up to this point lead to his presence, come from his presence. Everything going forward is centered around his presence. He is near, he is with, he is not just by, but he is for us. He is for us. He is fighting on our behalf. And I would just remind you, friends, that that these particular deathly valleys or These moments of darkness, they come in all shapes and sizes. It could be physical, emotional, relational, financial, bereavement, grief, depression, profound disappointment in life, either with ourselves or from the hand of others. It could have been a pandemic several years ago, trauma from times gone by, abuse, even now, I mean, these, the valleys are, are, are so uniquely shaped. The threats, the dangers, they're real. I'm, I'm so glad for this. This is real life. 
It's not always green verdant pastures. It's not always clear, cool, flowing waters. Sometimes in following the righteous path of our Lord, we go through reprehensible places. And yet, he is the one guiding us, not only there, but through there to the ultimate place where he is taking us. The reason why David here is so particularly encouraged by God's guidance through the valley and his guardianship is because he has in his hands a rod and a staff. Notice that. It says, your rod and your staff, they comfort me. I've always wondered about that. I'd I'd heard people explain to me in times gone by that uh, a staff, at least, that second one was like the shepherd's crook that could pull sheep in. And that makes a ton of sense. The, the rod, though, never really made much sense to me. Because um, as like when I asked one of my children this week, what do you think a rod is? They just said, a stick. And I'm thinking, uh, lions, tigers, bears, oh my, no, please, not a stick. You know, like, I, what are you going to do with a stick? <laughs> well, it could be translated Stick. But in the context of the ancient Near Eastern shepherd, it wasn't just a stick. It was more like a club or a cudgel. It was approximately two feet long. And in some archaeological excavations and depictions, it actually has nails driven through the end. (laughs) This is not just an instrument for fending off attack. This is an instrument of abolishing it's violent he's so confident because the shepherd's not only with him but he's fully outfitted for whatever the challenge whether it be a threat from without he can destroy it he can abolish it or whether it's the greater threat to me the threat from within Prone to wonder, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love, the old hymn says. We just do the dumbest stuff. We'll walk right off the edge of a cliff. And what does he do? He protects us not only from those external enemies, but the internal. He pulls us gently back in. We're safe in the darkest spots because our shepherd is present and well-equipped. These little symbols of rod and staff, they are a comfort to the sheep. Again, be gone with uh, people trying to be creative with shepherding illustrations and talk about, I heard one guy say one time, yeah, one of them is a stick and he uses it to break the sheep's leg to pull him back in if he keeps running away. I'm like, where did you find that? Like, how do you treat your animals at your house? It just pulls them in. And God's, like, it's a comfort. It's not like, oh. it's like, these things are for his good. The providential attacks, the providential pullings in, they're a comfort to him. Enabling him to walk through these tough places. Just a couple notes here, friends, practically. Can I just remind you, please? 
that if you do find yourself in that dark, dismal place, even today, it isn't because you necessarily did something wrong. Romans 8.1 says it this way, There is now therefore no condemnation to those who are under Christ Jesus, or in Christ Jesus. Nothing. No condemnation. He is, is not punishing you. He is presiding over you. He is doing something better, something greater. The valleys are part of the path. But let me assure you of a second thing. He will get you through. The valley is not the destination. It is a means to an end. And God always pulls his sheep through. I hate to admit this, but I confess that I have this inner nerd within me. I always wanted to be the cool guy, the athletic one. At different times, I could wear those personas better, but there was always this this secret part of me that just would geek out over the dumbest stuff. And for whatever reason, one of those things that I just am perpetually fascinated by were words. Words. This struck me last night. I called my brother for his birthday. And I was trying to be creative with the conversation. And I said, um, another year older, another year, fill in the blank. I thought that was pretty cool. I was like, oh. He's like, man, I don't know. I, what am I supposed to say? I'm like, have you never heard that phrase before? Like, wiser. But you were supposed to get that. It's not wiser. Like, you could have said, another year older, another year sadder. Another year older, another year fatter. Like, you could have, like, fill in the blank. Like, what marks your year? So he comes back uh, to me and says, um, all right, uh, perspective. I was like, that doesn't fit. <laughs> another year older, another year Perspective. So I made up a word. I said perspectivaler. <laughs> words, words matter. I, um, I even was debating on words for this. The guys and I planned the service together and we're like, last week we talked about our shepherd Lord provides. This week, what do we want to say? <laughs> like, what's the, what's the best way to summarize this? And we were like, well, the first verse is about guiding, and the second verse is about guarding. And I'm like, no, I want a word, like a word. Like, what's the word? I can't say guiding and guarding. I want a word. (laughs) And um, we didn't land on a word. (laughs) We said guides and guards. That's what it says. But after the fact, I did find a word. We have one in our English dictionary. Preside preside. It means to sit before in the exercise of authority. Now, preside is a verb. I thought that I would be able to say, 
God is our provider and God is our presider, but that's not a word. But you know what the noun form of the word is? President. The guy who sits before. The one who leads ahead. The one who is supposed to come alongside. I love the way that uh, Mark Twain, he shares my affinity for words. I like to think that The only reason I care so much about words is because of 2 Timothy 3.16. The Bible says every word is inspired of God and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, and instruction in righteousness. There is a theological reason behind my penchant for words, but I would also say that there is a, a literary reason. And I first learned this from Mark Twain a few years ago where he actually points out the difference in his mind between the right word and the almost right word. The difference between the right word and the almost right word to him is the difference between the lightning bug and the lightning. Words matter. And the people of God through the years have tried to think of the right word The right word to summarize God's authoritative leadership and guidance and accompanying care. They just thought that it was was such an important concept to marry together. That they wanted people to be able to just get it in a word. And so they did indeed come up with one. The term that has been agreed upon through the years is called providence. Providence. It's confusing because you hear in it provide, the word provide, but that's not what it means alone. Provideo, to see before. To see before. God can see before. And he doesn't just see before it, but he sees to it. I guess that's what the word means. Like, he sees before, he knows what's going to happen in, in the lives of his people, but he will also see to it that it works out for his glory and their good. And so the way that they would commonly define this particular word, and one catechism goes this way, what do you mean by the providence of God? And this is beautiful. Please listen. The almighty and everywhere present power of God, whereby, as it were by his hand, he upholds and governs heaven, earth, and all creatures, so that herbs and grass, rain and drought, fruitful and barren years, meat and drink, health and sickness, riches and poverty, yea, and all things come not by chance, but by his fatherly hand. Providence. Did did you catch it? God's fatherly hand, his powerful fatherly hand, is working in, in such a way that everything... Both the verdant green pastures and the deep dark valleys were all part of his ultimate guidance and leadership. Now don't agree to that too quickly because that's hard. 
That's hard. It's one thing to say, oh, God is in control, and he is sovereign, and he is strong when life's going your way. It's something else when the diagnosis didn't go the direction that you wanted to. When the marriage didn't make it. When the child didn't live. All things by his fatherly hand, really. We're going to blame this on God? Is he really that much in control of things? Friends, I just want you to know that when it comes to the great things and the terrible things that happen in our lives, there's only a couple lenses at which you could look at God in this. The one is to say, you know what? We are, um, we are, we are in control of our own lives, and we've made some bad decisions, and God is doing what he needs to do, moving around tornadoes and diseases like chess pieces and some kind of perverse divine playtime. Like you could say that like God's just in charge, like monkeying around with life and doesn't really care about the end result of it all. Or you can look at providence through the lens of scripture and see a loving God who counts the hairs on our heads and directs the sparrows in the sky that we might live unafraid. If if you look at it through the, the lens of God's control, if you see providence for what it really is, you understand that as terrible as the things are in any given moment, He always works them out for something better. Calvin wrote, What else can we wish for ourselves if not even one hair can fall from our head without his will? Think about that. There are no accidents in your life. There is no chance. Nothing's been left to chance. Every every economic downturn, every bad diagnosis, every doctor's report, every financial hardship is, is from the God who sees all things, plans all things, and loves us. You say, Justin, I don't get it. I don't understand that. I don't even know how I would confidently say that to another person. You've got to have perspective. You've got to know some history, how God always does this, has always done this. Slavery in Egypt makes sense now. It didn't make sense 3,000 years ago. Killing the Messiah... The crucifixion of God's son, the, the, the king, didn't make sense then. It makes sense now. At some point in the future, whether near or far, whatever it is that doesn't make sense will. Because the shepherd will get you through that valley. You just can't see it in the moment. Fear comes, but the response is that of faith. These guys, when they were defining the providence of God, didn't leave it in the impractical. Did you know that the next question they would ask is this? How is the providence of God supposed to help us? And here was the memorized answer that all would give. Because God is in control of all things for our good and his glory, because he's leading us down the right paths and through the dark valleys, We can be patient in adversity. 
thankful, and prosperity. And with a view to the future, we can have a firm confidence in our faithful God and Father that no creature shall separate us from his love, for all creatures are so completely in his hand that without his will, they cannot so much as move. You hear that? There was three different, three different scenarios depicted in that answer, and I just want to list them for you here and just see which one resonates with you right now. Which one best characterizes your life in this season? Here's your options. Prosperity, adversity, mystery. Some of you could really have stepped in here today and be like, things are going great. It's great. It's good. Things are right between me and the Lord. Things are right and good with my family. It's not perfect, but it's great. I I want you to know that you can walk out of here today and be able to say in good confidence that things are going great. After all, he's a good shepherd. He leads through like these abundant, verdant valleys. Like your life should be at times marked by the perception of his favor. There's nothing wrong with that. As much as I like will try to, to beat up on prosperity preaching and belief, I do not want to deny that God intends for his people's lives to be generally characterized by good. So what's the response in that? Hey, guess what? God is the one who made it that way. It isn't you. So what does the catechism say? Be grateful in prosperity. Be grateful. It came from him. Thank him for it. It's awesome. It's good. Whether it's your money or your health or the relationship that you enjoy with Jesus, that came from his fatherly hand. Again, listen to that last line. All creatures so completely in his hand that without his will they cannot so much as move. God let that happen. It's interesting in the prayer of Hannah. She's praying for her son. She acknowledges that both wealth and poverty come from the Lord. If it's good, God did it. But some of you would say, you know what? My life isn't marked by prosperity. I guess the season of my life right now that I would choose is adversity. Adversity. It's hard. It's, it's painful. What does the providence of God teach us in adversity? Patience. Patience. I'll just tell you, brothers and sisters, like it's, it's inescapable. I wish there was some way around it, and yet it's the way God deems best. Sometimes you are just patiently holding on by faith. Sometimes you will follow Jesus, not by feeling, but by faith alone. It's inevitable. These times come. It's the way God works. There's this old hymn that we'll even sing today that just gets it right. Listen to the counsel, and I want you to note as I read you these lines, the inevitability of adversity. Fear not, I am with thee, O be not dismayed, for I am thy God, and will still give thee aid. I will strengthen and help thee and cause thee to stand upheld by my righteous, omnipotent hand. But listen to these two verses. When through deep waters I call thee to go, not if, when through deep waters I call thee to go, the rivers of woe shall not thee overflow, for I will be with thee thy troubles to bless 
and sanctify to thee thy deepest distress. Listen to the next verse. This guy will not let it go. When through fiery trials thy pathway shall lie, not if, but when, my grace all sufficient shall be thy supply. The flame shall not hurt thee. I only design thy dross to consume and thy gold to refine. You will, we will go through that valley and in it we must be patient. We must hold on that the ultimate good is still to come. Paul made it even stronger. Do you remember that famous passage in Romans 8, 31 to 39 where he's saying, nothing will separate us from the love of Christ. And you're like, yes! The love of Christ is with me always. And then Paul starts listing the specific instances that will threaten our love to Christ and listen to what he lists. Tribulation, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, sword, and slaughter. He sees all these things as continuous with the love of Christ. And in fact, because Christ had sacrificed himself and risen from the dead, and now intercedes for his people on behalf of the Father, because that ultimate good had been satisfied fully and finally by him, all these things, according to Paul, are only serving to work out that greater good of making us more like him. And and he even goes so far as to say this, in all these things, what things? That terrible list I just read. In all these things, we are more than conquerors, more than champions through him that loved us. It's a win. Justin, that is not a win for me. It's not a win yet. It's not a win yet. It's a win eventually your valley right now however press of its walls are formed from depression to death or a thousand other kinds of darkness besides is not the destination but the journey patience there's a final category of person some prosperity some adversity the last is this mystery Justin, I, I mean, there's a little bit of good and bad, but I, frankly, I don't know what's around the next turn. I don't, I don't know what's coming. I don't know what's next. I don't, I don't even know what the next right move is. You talk about paths of righteousness. I wish I knew, like, where to go, who to marry, where to work, when to retire, which jobs to take, which jobs to turn down. I mean, like, mystery. Catechism spoke to that too. It said that in those times of mystery, we can be confident in hope that God is guiding all things to that good end. Confidence. You can have confidence even amid mystery. So, <laughs> uh, thanks. Well, look, if you know that it, like, it's unavoidable that you're going to reach that final good glorious destination, like whatever the next right step is, is going to work out. See, that sounds too optimistic. No, it's just the way God does it. He always works it out for his people. Can, can I help you, though, with this next step piece? I, I just I want to I care for you well. When I was praying through this text this week, 
It's a habit of mine. I walk around this building once and pray for myself in light of the text. I walk around the building the next time and I pray for you guys in light of the text. When I was praying for myself, I had to stop. And I wrote down like five different ways that I had actually missed the path of God for my own preferences in this or that situation. What I mean by this is obedience to God, the next right step, is rarely a matter of where or what, but more often a matter of how or why. Let me tell you what I mean by that. Sometimes we're like, oh, I need to know what God wants me to do next. Where does he want me to live? Where does he want me to work? Where does he want me to serve? Where does he want me to retire? The where is not actually part of of the path that he has prescribed. That's just a personal preference. What matters more is the how. How are you making that decision in the first place? What is most important to you in it? In making a move this direction or that direction, is it for the kingdom of God and his glory or your own? Is it because you think it will advance the gospel or advance your personal good? Like, why are you making the decision? It's it's not a matter of where as much as it is why. How? How are you doing this? The fruit of the Spirit, brothers and sisters, matter way more than the ultimate destination in any given decision. In whatever decision it is that you make, will it lead to more love, joy, peace, gentleness, happiness, self-control, patience, kindness? I mean, like, think about that. Will it advance the gospel? I know we have real decisions to make, but for some of us, we're so, like, tuned in on, like, the details. We're like, hey, pray for me when I make this decision or that decision or go this direction or that direction. And we're missing the bigger point. I illustrate again with just personal experience, and sorry to be so transparent, but the grace of God is good. I remember as a teenager praying, I'm 17, and I'm like, Lord, who do you want me to marry? Who do you want me to marry? It's a big decision, right? The who? I'm asking about the who. And yet at the same time, as I'm obsessing over the who, I'm being eaten alive on the inside by impurity and not as concerned about the how. The who doesn't matter in light of the more obvious how. God intended for me to walk in purity. And by pursuing the purity, it would have taken me further down his path. God's path is a path of righteousness. The right things. And so in mystery, you just continue to obey and do the next right thing. Take the next right step. I know you're worried about the future, but I would just tell you, take the next right step. You say, well, uh, what is that? Well, maybe for some of you, the, the next right step is under the Lordship of Christ. You're sitting here today, and you have yet to receive the Lord Jesus... As your shepherd, you have yet to receive his gift on your behalf, his sacrifice on your behalf, his resurrection. You have yet to understand and place yourself under his lordship. For some of you, that is the next right step. You don't know what to do next? Hey, I've got it. Step under the lordship of Christ. Believe in him alone. Be baptized publicly and walk with him in the company of his church. There you go. That might be your next step. 
But for some of us, you're like, Justin, I've done that. Thank you. Well, for some of us, it isn't just to step under the lordship of Christ. For others, it may be to step up to the grace offered by his normal means of grace. You're so worried about this thing or that thing. I would ask you, have you stepped up to receive the good things that he has offered for you in regular exposure to the word of God, personally and corporately? Prayer to him, privately and corporately. And regular involvement in his church. I know, you're like, Justin, that sounds a little too simple. (laughs) Well, following him is not that complicated. It may be a step up to take advantage of the means by which he pours out his grace. That will inform your decision making. The relationships will actually lead you down even better paths. Some of you today may just need to step away. Step away from some sinful habit some idolatrous relationship. I don't mean to sound like a Baptist preacher doing an altar call, come, you know, like give this thing to the Lord here at the, uh, the wood podium. But I would say in your heart, you know, and I don't talk this way often, but let's, let's just be honest. You know whether or not you have begun to step away from his path And I would say, you know, probably, in light of the Spirit, exactly what it is that you need to step away from to get back on the path. You're worried about all the big future things. What about the next step of obedience? And then I would say to us all, when we don't know uh, what to do, we always could take the step out to advance the gospel through his church to the world. We stay dedicated to the mission of God that he's given to us. How could, who needs to know more of Jesus? How could I be a part of seeing his name made famous in places where it is not known? I just offer these as samplings, but all I would say to you, brothers and sisters, is that even in the times of mystery, you can be confident that God will get you to that ultimate end. I think it'd be good for us to close with a moment of silent prayer. Maybe you would consider that next step. I'll let you pray. Then I'll pray. And we'll close in a song of praise. Let's pray silently together. Father, you are leading your children forward. You are taking us through. There are many here today who just need your grace to take the next ordinary step of obedience down the paths of righteousness. Lord, help them. Some today here are hurting. They're scared in that dark valley that you've placed them in. Lord, give them confidence. Lord, 
steal their spiritual spine. May they see the light at the end of that cavern and know that it will lead ultimately to that good place of your abundant provision and protection. May they even know today that you are with them. We're doing this in our hearts today. Maybe we'd be able to walk away from here confident in your providence over us. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.